0: Hello, and thank you for joining me on the Frontier Markets podcast. I'm your host, Krishan, and my guest today is Nicholas Rowani from Vula, or as I like to call him, Nick from Vula, clean-ass <laughs> Um, Vula is backed by Entrepreneur First in London, and their mission is to make fundraising easy, or at the very least, less painful for companies across Africa. I'm eager to learn more about how they do that, and so I'll start by asking Nick the original question here, which is, what is the origin story of Vula? Um, both on a kind of tactical level, but also, you know, I just came back from a walk with a friend. We were talking about the mythology of great companies. I'd love to hear both the timeline on a practical level, but also a mythological story of kind of Vula and, and what it kind
1: of like stands for. Mm. I think to start with the mythology, because I think that's a beautiful question, Krish. Um, Vula is a Tosa word it means open. And our goal at Vula, the, the founding principle, the DNA, is the question of how we open up uh, this beautiful, incredible, uh, and mysterious market uh, to a, a humongous set of very, very thirsty investors who want outsized returns and who keep complaining that they have nowhere to go. Uh, and we just see this this incredible um landscape this incredible business landscape this incredible talent landscape uh that uh, is the entire african continent that is so so untapped it's crazy um and our our entire ethos is how do we open this so now you know some closer uh on a on a on a on a practical level um before before founding Vula, I was uh, I was an associate at McKinsey um, and a big part of what I focused on, you know, was it was it was McKinsey's London office. So I was doing a lot of private doing a lot of energy stuff. My, my speciality in engineering is, is sustainable energy. Um, but one of my passions and passion projects that I took up at the firm uh, was all about enabling African startups and scale ups. A uh, big project that I did kind of had me based out of Lagos, Nigeria uh, for four months, leading a team there, really uh, doing two things. One was asking the question, what are the barriers uh, for really talented founders and really incredible companies that are looking to scale up? What are the barriers that are preventing them from doing this? Um, and the other one was really helping helping these companies to, to raise around and, and to get in touch with investors and to identify uh, really promising companies. And, um, was that, was that it's one is one identify, uh, promising companies. And I think what I, what I found being there was, was the reality of this, this arbitrage opportunity, which is that there is such incredible talent, um, business people who are doing, uh, crazy things, identifying real problems, not making up weird problems and, and, you know, I don't know, web web three chicken fighting betting. I love web three, but web three chicken fighting betting does not require a $26 million pre-seed race. Okay. I'm just saying that. Are we, are we
0: not a fan of chicken chain?
1: No, (laughs) get chicken chain out of my face. (laughs) I'll tell you what, what is right. Like fundamental questions, Fundamental questions like how do I finance my kids' uh, education. Um, fundamental questions like um, how do I how do I uh, you know increase my output as a smallholder farmer when there are forty thousand other smallholder farmers around me, and no one has taken the time to just show me the small incremental improvements I can make that can basically transform my entire province. Um, You know, how can I leverage this natural form of community which in Africa is just natural to us um, in order to create better financial security for myself and for my family, create financial opportunities? Uh, How do we take these ancient structures, uh, things like stock in South Africa, collective approaches uh, to to community security and scale them up with with new digital approaches? Uh, There are such cool questions to ask. Uh, and that many people are asking. But the moment they look for investment, uh, they are met with the highest walls, uh, the deafest ears, and the most tightly closed eyes. Um, And it was just on the frustration of that and on on seeing this incredible talent uh, that I realized something kind of has to be done. And of course, you know, Vula is not the first uh, company that's trying to do something about this. We We have a beautiful history of many talented entrepreneurs and business people trying to solve this problem before. But there are a number of really unique things that are happening uh, in in tech uh, with our own talents, with the market itself right now that just make this a super wonderful time to be trying to solve this problem. Um, And I think our approach is also really unique. So my co-founder, Alex Goff, uh, built AI for IBM before this. Um, and then he was also working at Dunhambi where he was working on with like super large data sets, like the world's largest credit card data sets for Walmart and stuff. And so his mind is just, is, is based around how do we create amazing matches? How do we do deep contextual, um, deep contextual pairing uh, of data? And, and that just lent itself really nicely to this question of how do we massively simplify funding uh, in a super complex funding landscape, uh, one of the you know everybody always asks like why Africa? What's unique about Africa? Blah blah blah. I'm sure on your on your podcast, you know Frontier Markets knows everything that's unique. You know you know all those factoids. but I think that the reality is like one of the really unique aspects of our continent is that we have such a diverse set of players who are allowed to play with so many different agendas when it comes to financing. Um, You know, we have the classic financiers. We have equity players across scales. We have, you know, we have a slowly developing venture capital market. Uh, We have debt players. We have commercial banks. Uh, But then we also have development financiers. We have charities. We have um, concessional financiers and impact investors. And it's like when you have so many different uh, incentives. How do you align these incentives to actually enable a market to flourish instead of providing the wrong people with the wrong opportunities, and and crowding out the right people from from having those opportunities? And no one's figured that out yet. Uh, it doesn't matter who you talk to. Like everybody knows, it's really really tough. Um, and it's tough because we've also got a culture uh, right now, like the kind of Silicon Valley VC culture which has proven itself to be so successful, uh, you know, in the US and in Europe, in in countries and in regions that have this fundamental infrastructure layer already in place, so that you can do very low marginal cost scaling, which is required for venture capital to work. And and then we sort of just emulate a lot of that culture, uh, unfortunately, and we make a lot of noise about it. And, And don't get me wrong, there are plenty of amazing companies that require venture capital funding and amazing VCs who are operating on the continent. So many of them are are good friends of mine. Um, but uh, at the same time, this isn't necessarily the model that is going to create broad-based transformation uh, of our business ecosystems. Uh, we need to kind of be original and we need to use the the community aspect um, of of the venture capital startup world. We need to tap into the enthusiasm, the the hustle culture but it doesn't necessarily need to have the same financial structure uh, because we don't necessarily have the same, the same infrastructure, financial uh, or just physical infrastructure that can support, support that. So all of that is a really long answer to the type of thinking that was behind why we need to start Vula. At the, at the basic level, it's about opening up uh, this incredible pool of talent to a more just and equitable approach enabled by technology, uh, that stops founders from wasting their time on things that they really don't need to be doing. Uh, you know, Paul Graham, uh, shout out to, to PG. PG, oh yeah. Yeah. He loves to, he loves to say this thing, uh, in, in a couple of his essays about how, uh, being able to, to pitch your company well as a founder Uh, is a really good indicator of your ability to be a a successful CEO or, you know, to run a company successfully. And I agree with him, of course, um, in most cases, but I think in the African case, it's really interesting because our class of investors is so far divorced from most of the markets we're trying to serve that I agree. It's important to be able to tell a, a really convincing story to your customers as a founder in African markets, but that doesn't necessarily correlate to being able to tell a good story to the types of investors that you're going to be coming across. And that might be in, in really practical ways, like English isn't your mother's tongue, uh, you didn't study overseas, and so you can't impress investors in the way they want to be reassured. Um, or it might literally be, you know, cultural storytelling, uh, the type of comfort that overseas investors want uh, for a founder that they, that they're going to feel like they trust. Um, And so a big part of what we're trying to do is also help to create that trust and to overcome those barriers and those prejudices, which might sit in the hearts of investors um, and enable that to to no longer, you know, no longer create these blockages. Because there are investors that want to put their money in and there are founders who need it. But there's just so much noise in between.
0: That's incredibly interesting. So two particular kind of points I want to hone in on from what you've shared here. First, is this idea of making trust legible, right? Making it uh, easier for outsiders to understand when inherently you have this outsider-insider dynamic Um, and using technology to do that. uh, Historically, the interesting example here is credit ratings agencies, where Mm -hmm. their role in the early 1900s was fundamentally you had a lot of new companies coming onto the stock market. You had these railroad companies, you had oil and gas companies, very, uh, you know, uh, gunslinging Wild West mentality, especially in American capital markets. And companies like Moody's and Fitch came to fruition in particular because investors were saying, how do we know whether this company is something that's worth investing in or not, at least on a kind of like base analysis level, right? And this ends up being this, you know, three-way kind of monopoly, so to speak, that exists right now in the market and a big kind of narrative. That people talk about is the lack of kind of you know effective credit ratings when it comes to African both sovereigns but also companies as well because yeah. the, which raises the cost of capital in these regions. Um, I think that was very appropriate for that time in history. Now the ability to crowd in more forms of data um, to get a better view of the character of the types of people you're investing in to understand the markets themselves. Um, and also by necessity, the need to do that when you have capital existing in different geographies to where you'd want to invest it. Um, mm-hmm. It's an incredibly exciting prospect. Two examples that I want to point to here. One, there's a company called Pioneer.app, which uh, their kind of fundamental model here is you know for early stage companies, what is the best indicator of progress? It's not EBITDA, it's not margins maybe people kind of point to founder pedigree, but really what is that meant to point to? It's meant to point Mm -hmm. to the velocity at which a founder is moving in terms of either accomplishing milestones or making things happen, testing out hypotheses, iterating, et cetera. And so what do they fundamentally have? They have this kind of gamified competition where every single week you update to the crowd what progress you've made in that kind of process. They use that as a kind of inbound funnel for investing in founders. Mind you, this company has kind of like evolved in a, in a different direction now, but that's, that's part of what they used to do, which I thought was very interesting as a bottoms up signal. Another mm. one that I find very inspiring here is a company called Axial. Axial um, does it for the lower middle market in America. So you have a lot of companies that have say between $3 million to $10 million in EBITDA. That is a very fragmented ecosystem where you don't have investor banker investment banker coverage. You don't have analyst coverage. So how do you make that more legible? Well, they map out that ecosystem, and they have scorecards for all of the different types of service providers that may exist in that ecosystem and region. So you'd have, for example, the best small market, you know, uh, legal analyst um, in Wilmington, Alabama, and there's a bunch of companies that they kind of analyze there, and they use technology to kind of do that. And so uh, I'm very excited by the story you've told on Fuda. Um, One final thing about me is also. uh, one of the entry points to frontier markets for myself mm-hmm. was a conversation that we had at this think tank i used to work at called the charter city institute with the previous public works minister of liberia this gentleman called jude moore and he was talking about the difficulties of financing basic roads in the country mm-hmm. He was talking about the difficulties of one telling the story right two creating the right financing structure to produce a return, three lots of constraints in the balance sheet, um, and a whole other slew of kind of uh, constraints that were getting in the way of that process, um, and I think that was a turning point for myself. Where at that time, you know, crypto was ripping, and I, yeah. you know, in, I enjoyed some of the more playful parts of crypto as well. Um, you know, n- not necessarily chicken chain, but stuff that was kind of similar. And I was like, wow, you know, it's easier to raise funds for a JPEG than it is for a rogue. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of absurd. Um, and, and so so that kind of like inspired me to learn a bit more about kind of like fintech and cost of capital and these kind of financing structures in these mm-hmm. regions. Um, so I'm very glad that you're tackling uh, this problem. It also fits in my origin story as well. I,
1: I think that's beautiful because I, I actually want to touch on that a little bit. I think I think the analogy that you gave of like US credit markets is a really interesting one because it, it also points to a history where we've been used to um basically a a single standard that determines whether or not a company is investable or bankable. Um, You know, you had Moody's that said, okay, this is our credit rating and everybody says, Oh, thanks Moody's for all of your approach. And we're just going to accept your approach because all of us, you know, we have a unique investment thesis, which is how we compete on the market as investors, but we're actually all looking at the same, you know, the same five metrics and we're just going to specialize in which companies, which which verticals, which cities, which geographies we're going to focus on. I think what makes this a really interesting problem is that you have kind of a third body uh, in this that, that uh, further complicates the issue, which is that you actually have a spectrum of risk appetites from the investors themselves, which means that it, the investors who are looking at Africa uh, do not have the same agenda and therefore do not have the same standards um, there can be there is such a wide range of uh, mandates for organizations that are looking to invest in Africa, from the simple commercial return uh, to you know increasing one or a few particular sustainable development goals, to enabling certain tech ecosystems, uh, to you know political you know deeper political uh, agendas, which mean that they don't need or require commercial returns at all. Uh, there are a bunch of amazing family offices based out of Salt Lake City Utah from um you know uh, millionaires or sometimes billionaires from the Church of the Latter-day Saints who go to visit Africa during their 2 years as youth to go and teach uh their their you know their faith to to these other countries and who fall in love with the place and who basically make a commitment that you know, when I'm forty, when I'm fifty, and I've got the money, I'm going to enable this place to thrive. I love Angola. Let's make Angola work. There is no expectation of a commercial return, but there is four hundred million dollars sitting there waiting to be invested in some sort of a company. And and the real question that that then uh, kind of moves forward is not uh, necessarily how do we simply create the the, the trust by. Being a third party who decides on what the standard is and rates these companies, but rather, how do we enable these companies to generate the type of material that a broad range of investors with different agendas might require a unique combination and permutation of, and enable that to happen instantly, and enable that to happen painlessly, and front load that data so that the moment that investor wants that info it can be there at their hands and they can make it an informed decision um, and that's kind of our goal our goal is simply to have uh, a an african entrepreneur at any stage of their business's growth uh, log on provide whatever information they have and see their top list of potential financiers across all capital markets whether that's grants equity debt it doesn't matter that's that's our dream that's what we're working towards because we believe that if we can put a tool like that into the hands of the youngest continent in the world, put that in the hands of the fastest growing continent in the world, the most untapped potential middle market, you know, middle-class market in the world, uh, we create ecosystems that promote prosperity at a level that hasn't ever been seen before.
0: Wonderful. It's essentially an investment banker for every company.
1: There you go. That's exactly it.
0: So more tactically, um, One thing that I saw that you guys have done recently is you've released a grant matching program for small to medium sized businesses in Nigeria. Um, And this is in lieu of a recent kind of, you know, when I say recent, I mean, this has been happening now for quite a few years, but uh, what one might call some funky business of the currency in the country. (laughs) And, uh, you know, we were joking before about how in the last few years, every single Nigerian has become an expert on monetary economics because of the fluctuations of their currency and having to deal with uh, just the oddness of the FX situation there. Could you share some context on what the situation in Nigeria is with the local currency that's the Naira? um, Mm -hmm. And also explain, one, what has happened there? Two, what are the main problems that have emerged from that? And three, um, what this kind of grant program you guys have kind of helped out with um, is doing in the area?
1: okay wow okay uh so much to go through there excited to try and pick this apart and explain it in a simple way um uh, first of all shout out to all of my niger brothers and sisters out there uh we're with you let's make this happen uh stay on your hustle How yeah. so uh let's i think it's useful to first understand what was happening before in nigeria um, you had a, a currency, the Naira, that was that was uh, being heavily controlled by the Central Bank of Nigeria. Uh, and what that meant, just, uh, I mean, the simplest way that I can put it is that every morning, the Central Bank of Nigeria told commercial banks what the rate was that they could trade the Naira in for US dollars, okay? But the problem is, when you're trying to do that type of control in an import-heavy economy, which Nigeria is deeply dependent on a bunch of imports again this is one of those conversations around infrastructure but everything from food to automotive to anything that is manufactured and value added nigeria is importing loads of which means that nigerians need dollars to do business and if the central bank of nigeria is setting the price rate that the local banks can sell uh, dollars at there is this official rate where uh you know by by noon on the day all of the dollars that the that the banks can sell are gone and now a third party guy comes in and says hey by the way I've got some dollars but you know they're not going to be at the at the commercial bank rate because you know what's five what's five fifty naira for a dollar that's nothing we can do 750 mm-hmm. and you as a business person uh have really no choice because you need to do your business so you take him up on the offer and Uh, And so you buy your your dollars at 750 and, uh, you know, everybody who wants to do business between noon and and midnight on that day has to buy at this other rate, which is an unofficial rate, black market rate, whatever you want to call it. And so you've got these two parallel markets, everyone who's got access to the official stuff, which is basically no one who doesn't have political connections, and then everybody else's market. Uh, and these parallel markets, you know, they act, they still acted within themselves as free markets. So the Central Bank of Nigeria obviously fluctuated what they said the official rate was on any particular day, and that affected its parallel market. But the parallel market had 12 middlemen and all of this markup and a bunch of people getting mad rich off of it. So that that's what the past looked like. And it was very stressful uh, because the the... You know, just there are certain things that you can't control, even if you're the Central Bank of Nigeria. Uh, you know, you can't actually control directly the value of imports and exports coming into and out of your country. So you can't control the value of your currency. And, uh, you know, foreign traders don't want your Naira because they can't buy anything in it. So they want the dollars. And so effectively, you're still increasing the, the value of the dollar to the Naira uh, until it reaches some, some form of equilibrium. And what that meant was that if you're a Nigerian company based in Nigeria and you get your, you know, you've just closed your seed round or your Series A, uh, by the time the money actually gets to you, you've lost 30% of it. If you're um, somebody who's trying to import uh, goods to, uh, you know, do manufacturing or assembly and you have to pay, you know, you have to keep a, a dollar to Naira balance sheet, you are going to be extremely challenged because all of your profits are constantly being eaten away by the changes in foreign exchange. Um, and that was just, that's just a problem that Nigerian entrepreneurs deal with. So anyone making money in Nigeria is, is why you should admire them even more because anyone yeah. making money in Nigeria through any form of import export, uh, has their finger on the pulse and has an internal model of currency exchange that we can only dream of ever developing in our lives. So then what happens? What happens is uh, we get a new president and our new president says a bunch of really interesting things. But one of them is we are um, we're going to allow the currency to reach a natural equilibrium itself. We're no longer going to enable the central bank of Nigeria to set what the rate is. Commercial banks, you guys sell. It's a free market. Let's, let's unite these two parallel markets. Um, and and what that means straight off the bat is that the naira will, uh, you know, it will be less valuable um, compared to the dollar, and that's simply because Nigeria is exporting less than it's importing. It's um, and and people want less naira than they want dollars, obviously. Um, and we're kind of in a place where we're waiting for that to settle. And every once in a while, in the past few weeks, we've seen reports of this this kind of secondary market coming up again, um, this parallel market. And that's less to do with the price and more to do with the liquidity. It's got to do with who can get actual access to Naira when and how much markup people are taking for being middlemen. And that's, that's, that really comes down to kind of democratization of currency access. Um, and it comes down to enabling businesses, especially import or export businesses, uh, to get access to, to the currency when and if they need it. But it doesn't solve the problem of a devaluing currency. And that affecting my balance sheet when I've got investments, when I'm buying assets, when I'm trying to do business. Um, And so uh, in partnership with TLG Capital, our good friends and partners. Is um, this um,
0: Zane's firm?
1: Yes, this is Zane's firm. And they are, to us, incredible specialists in structured credit uh, in Africa. Um, Really some of the most creative and innovative approaches to how you finance small and medium businesses uh, on the continent is coming out of TLG capital. So shout out to them. Oh, yeah. um, they, of course, uh, you know, they, they buy the value prop of, of Vula very deeply because, you know, we're a wonderful partner for them. Um, you know, they have a really specialized investment team that has, a, you know, a, a limit on their time and attention and the, the ticket sizes that they can look at. Um, but what Vula enables them to do is to to kind of monitor the market, uh, to, to um, syndicate demand for some of their products and to basically save their investment team a bunch of time in, in finding the right deals and, and actually facilitating the due diligence process of that as well. Because anybody who's actually sat as an analyst on some of these DD teams knows that a lot of your time is actually spent chasing up uh, targets for documentation, uh, waiting for the right uh, data to be delivered to you so that you can actually just tell what's going on. Um, and so a big part of what, what we started building at Vula for the back end for the investor side is just tools that automate this process so that your analysts can, you know, reach out to tens of companies at the same time and only kind of waste their time once all the data is, is in place. So our idea with with TLG Capital is simply how can we enable Nigerian companies that are uh, export-heavy companies to stabilize their foreign currency position while things are super um, volatile, and and one way that you can do that is instead of you know actually uh, converting your currency, converting your dollars. Let's say you know you're doing exports, you've got some dollars, you need Naira to pay for your operations. Instead of just doing the conversion, uh, which means that you kind of commit, you go long on Naira. Uh, instead, you put that money up, those dollars up as collateral. Um, and by, by putting them up as collateral, it enables you to kind of to borrow Naira off of the, those dollars as collateral and get a pretty good rate without immediately um, immediately committing to the full conversion. And why that's useful is because it it effectively becomes a way to hedge uh, against volatility. The problem is that, first of all, most SMEs just don't have access to a facility that enables you to hedge your dollars or or collateralize your dollars against Naira in this way. And if they do, the rates are crazy, uh, like crazy high. Um, And so what we figured out is that by using Vula's technology to onboard these companies, um, and like I said, like save save TLG a bunch of time because they're not looking at deals that are like under X million. Um, we we basically put these these small businesses into groups, into tranches, um, and we and we um, aggregate their demand for the facility and enable them to get the same rates as a big, you know, a big ticket buyer would. But uh, now they're just they're just getting the little checks that they need. Um, and it's really exciting. And, and the, the design of the product is, is pretty far along. And we're talking to some Nigerian companies that are looking to, to kind of test it out for us and pilot it for us. But it's a really exciting time because it proves a, a number of important things about Vula's technology. One is this idea of matching the right company to the right uh, you know, financial product. Uh, and being able to do that for investors who have, all of the financial infrastructure in place but do not have the the team size or the inclination to go looking for small deals at the you know at the at the low end of the market or upstream but the problem in an african context is that if you don't support the upstream investments you don't get a middle market to invest in and we don't have a middle market in africa i mean we don't have a middle market for debt really uh, outside of oil and gas and extractives and a bit of telecom we don't have uh, an exit market for equity, which is why I think like we really need to explore venture capital more and see what aspects of this culture we should bring into African investing and what parts of it are just pure emulation. Um, and so, because we don't have this middle market, we need to like we need the people with the infrastructure, with the talent, to be to be cultivating uh, the upstream businesses. But they don't have the time, and they're not being paid enough. So this is really where technology comes into play. Right. This is where the low overheads of having an AI that can identify these businesses, of using LLMs to generate uh, really, really uh, high quality investor ready material um, to enable these companies to tell us more about themselves in a way that doesn't put the onus on the founder to sit and spend six hours describing their whole business, uh, but very quickly kind of spinning up info and then collecting that all up and saying, here you go. Uh, investor. I know that you don't want to spend five hours on DD, but here's all of this company's registration info. Here's their balance sheet. It's automatically been analyzed by our, our bots and they've given you all of the ratios that you need to see if this is the type of company for you. And they're all fitting within your bracket. Um, and this is the vertical that you really like. And here it is. Do you want to get in touch with the founder? Cause they're looking for a million dollars and they're happy whether it's equity or debt or whatever. Like we talk as, as investors, As though like the target market really cares about where the capital is coming from. I think one of Vula's immediate insights was like, look, entrepreneurs are trying to run a business and African entrepreneurs are mad practical. We don't see, oh, this is debt. This is equity. This is grants. Look, man, there's capital and there's terms that come with that capital. And the less terms, the better. But I need capital right now because I'm out here trying to make some money. And so for Vula, we're just uniting these capital markets and and doing that, you know, by having the relevant data.
0: Incredible. So three things I want to highlight from what you shared here. Um, first is the point that you make on cultivating small businesses and helping the top subset of those become these middle market businesses that can then become large cap over time. Um I think it's interesting because one of the core barriers that people kind of narrativize when it comes to certain kind of sub-markets in Africa is, oh, it's really difficult because once you get to mid-size, that's when you start getting perhaps government trouble or you start getting kind of regulatory troubles, etc. Um, Maybe tax becomes more of an issue as well. And this is also a problem in Central Asia, like Kyrgyzstan is another example of a country like this. Um, with that being said, it is also quite obvious to me that... Uh, Whilst that's a comfortable narrative to have um, as we kind of like you know, perceive things, I think the narrative violation here is oh, because we associate tough bureaucracy and potentially corruption in some of these countries with the markets, therefore we come up with this story of that being the kind of cause. But I wonder, I wonder if your suggestion is far stronger here because if you look at the kind of talent that exists for these small to medium sized businesses or the small ones that can become medium sized, that capital bottleneck is very real. Um, and I'll give you two examples that mm-hmm. kind of like illustrate this shift in model that may be necessary, right? So the first one goes back to a previous episode with this guy, uh, Zach Marks. Zach Marks is the founder of a company called Gia Finance, which does financing, uh, crypto native financing and lending for small businesses. Think of like kind of you know, Chaiwala-esque type entities, really, nice. Um, nice. in nice. Um, uh, Philippines, Kenya, and India. Right now. Wow! now. And so when I say Chaiwala-esque, I mean, like, you know, these corner shops, very small um, um, businesses, and they have a very interesting kind of you know, take on the data layer here. But in particular, the really interesting thing that he shared was a story of one of the entrepreneurs who has really benefited from the lower interest rates that come from their kind of lending platform, because she started off with um really kind of like not capital intense at all project, which was she would buy used clothes, packs of them that were kind of sent to Philippines. She would then advertise them on Facebook and the way she advertised them, she used her charisma to do so. She would actually um, yes, make yes. these videos and it was almost like, um, you know, the home shopping network or something along those lines. Yes. And she, she built a reputation through that. She was able then with the kind of cash flow and retained earnings to buy and build a um, bar slash restaurant. Now this bar slash restaurant, um she, has cultivated a set of locals who love it very much but just as interesting is because of her relationship with Gio Finance, she's borrowing at a rate that's far lower than what most banks would kind of lend to you and she's actually competing with the informal lending market that exists there um, and what that means is she'll lend to her customers for example who need some money before kind of you know, getting their wages at the end of the month or whatever and mm-hmm. And here's the really smart thing, I think, uh, which is the way that she holds them accountable is obviously she's gotten to know them and so it's like an informal trust, but also equally as interesting is there's a board in the bar. And if someone is late by one day, the first letter of their name goes up. Oh. Late by two days, the second letter of <laughs> name goes up. By the third day, you know, it's like hangman, but it shape, and capital. And um, everyone in the community will know, oh, this person's not paid her back, how dare they? Um, They're looking to kind of scale upwards. But the reason why I bring this up (laughs) is because the archetype for entrepreneurship in developing and emerging markets is very different to the kind of very clean and crisp story you hear about kind of Silicon Valley uh, entrepreneurs. And so one of my favorite PDFs that I've read recently was 150 tycoons from China. And if you look at the origin story, it's similar to the story of like Adani, for example, it starts off with someone who's doing wholesale trading. It starts off with someone doing Mm -hmm. kind of waste management, some very kind of scrappy, small to medium sized business type thing. And then they figure out how they unlock capital in various ways, obviously bespoke or institutionally kind of embedded with the growth story. But once that's there, you know, that top tier of founder, um, they may have been doing something that you may have thought, oh, it's a a lifestyle business, it's a small business. No, 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 they have the talent and capacity, but you just need to unlock that in the right way. So exactly. what you shared is incredibly exciting, Nick.
1: I, I also want to build on that, because I think when it when it comes to medium-sized businesses, like what we mean when you grow into that medium size and like the model, like you said, like the model of saying, okay, well, this is when they run into trouble with governments, this is when they run into trouble with regulation, with tax, et cetera. Like that is that is true. Like I've also been there for those conversations and that is tough. Um, but it, it is also this question of kind of creating a critical, a critical mass of the middle. Um, and what it means to have multiple diverse founders who have that sort of capital behind them, who have already achieved enough of their vision and who have proven themselves to have their finger on the pulse of the problems of their society because they've built a business that solves that problem. Um, and you know, that's not the only problem that they've that they've noticed. um and and, you know, of course we've we've got a, a good proof of that, uh, you know, in a Nigerian sense uh, because we have, you know, one of the, only uh, double unicorn founders in the world on our continent. And we're also, you know, proud of him, but it's, it's the Goodness. idea of, okay, I start by trying to, um, eat, uh, um, you know, you start by trying to find a problem of, okay, how do I, um, how do I, how do I hi- hire out, hire out, uh, this, this huge kind of pool of tech talent? Um, And, and, you know, how do I get that out, out there to the world? And then I need to now pay my talent. And I realize, man, there's no effective, uh, there's no effective payment system. So let me now build payments as well. And you, and you find, uh, you know, two, two billion dollar companies because of how talented and, and on the ball you are. And I think like, again, like in, in the Western world, you're going to say, um, you're going to say okay well it's a it's the government institutions that are responsible for setting the regulation for deciding how things work etc um but but i also think there's something to be said about building up and and providing more uh you know equity in society to business owners who themselves are the ones who are building a bunch of infrastructure uh, you know to give you a clear example you know where uh, one of the companies that we're working with um have you know some of the largest farms in the Congo, and uh, they they uh, farm um, what's it called palm palm oil. Um, and the thing about palm oil is that it's ready to be harvested in the wet season. But if you're in the Congo, the wet season also means that there's no roads. So what do you do to, when you need to transport your things across dirt roads in the wet season? You don't do anything. You allow those those the palms to rot, and you lose all of your thing. So what do, what do companies do? They build their roads themselves. They build the infrastructure, right? Cause they're making enough money that they can actually think about that as a long-term investment. They're working with the local government, but in the end, the local government, the municipal government doesn't have the capital for it. They're busy applying to the, to the international monetary fund to get a loan. And the company's like, look, we don't care. Just allow us to build this road because we need it and everybody else can use it as well. This happens all the time, right? where it's not like this classic thing like the government will handle infrastructure and the companies will do business. It's like we're all in this together. We all need to build it together and like build the vision of what Africa can become together. And the more SMEs that are enabled to kind of flourish beyond this small scale thing, like the more we'll contribute to the building up of that infrastructure as well.
0: Totally. Um, two interesting examples here. One is um, at a time, the world's biggest company was this company called Reynolds, no, Reading & Company. Um, Reading & Company was uh, based, if I'm not mistaken, in Pennsylvania, I think. And Mm -hmm. um, Buffett was a shareholder of this company towards the end of its life. But when it was actually the biggest company in the world, its main value add was they would get hard um, coal for households to warm themselves up. They owned some of the most lucrative deposits around that area. and Um, They also owned, and this is key to their company's success, they owned and built the number one railroad that transported um, that coal to ports, right? Now, in owning those two assets and creating those two assets and cultivating them, they ended up having the recurrent capital to then become a horizontal railroad company that expanded that railroad elsewhere. Mm. But that's a unique example of, you know, it's not a government that's financing that. It was um, folks in a joint stock company And it started off very simple. It started off with mining, mining coal. They realized they need infrastructure. As they build that infrastructure, they realize, hey, we're kind of good at building this infrastructure. Let's build more of this infrastructure in other contexts. Um, And so I think uh, empowering that is is very key. But but the second thing that you mentioned, which is also interesting, is this idea of uh, creating a constituency amongst small to medium-sized businesses. if there's just one medium, if, if every single year, let's say the criteria to become a middle market firm, for argument's sake, this is not actually the right number here, is say $10 million in EBITDA, right? Mm. Or let's just say, actually, let's use top line revenue instead. Let's say like $25 million in top line revenue. Um, the measure of success... For kind of growth should be how many firms go from small to medium-sized every single year. Forget exit markets, forget valuations. You want to think how many folks reach that revenue point. Now, how many, if, if, if the number is lower than in most other regions per capita, um, and you have a history of not having that many firms get to that point, you only have massive firms that are politically associated, or small firms, then you're by yourself in kind of negotiating power when it comes to institutions that are not very well built for your type of entity, and they see you as a money pot, right? Now, if it's not just you that's graduating to 25 mil, it's you and 50 other companies, and you all know each other, and you have the right collective infrastructure to kind of come together. Suddenly, you become a constituency that can say, actually, this is what we need to unlock growth, and we know exactly what kind of buttons to press to kind of do so, and we can do it together.
1: And I can give you a clear example of that, right? Like this is the Nigerian this is the Nigerian uh, solar manufacturing uh, ecosystem, right? In the past, let's say th- five years, who uh, you know a bunch of companies with really talented uh, CEOs and, and founding teams, who you know, okay, we're not in a place to completely manufacture our solar home systems or solar cells or whatever, but what we can do is import. Uh, you know, the the disparate elements of these electrical circuits and then assemble them in Nigeria, do that value-added manufacturing. We need more manufacturing on the continent in general. Um, so let's get that going. And then we sell because we've got a huge market uh, all across West Africa. And the government have, uh, you know, the regulations that are saying that, you know, we're not going to be, uh, we're not going to have the same type of import duties that are normally paid if we're doing solar, you know, solar and renewable energy imports. And that all sounds amazing. So a bunch of people go out to start these companies. And, you know, they're building it up and it sounds really great. And they've got the market demand. And um and then the time comes for their import to come from China, uh, you know, of their solar cells and of their electrical circuits. And they're met by the guy at the at the <laughs> at the port and he says, pay me my you know, paying my import duty. And now you're standing there looking like a fool next to a government paper. And you say, no, can't you see on the government gazette it says that we're, you know, we don't have to pay this. It's solar. He says, I don't care. Do you see the government guy here right now? Huh. <laughs> no. So pay. And you're like, but that's my entire margin, right? That 15%, that, that 25%, that's my whole margin. Yeah. And you now are taking my margin. Not because I don't have support from the government, not because the regulation isn't right, but because the experience of the actual individual entrepreneur isn't amplified enough, isn't large enough for anyone to hear them care. And so it's like, but if you have like a cabal of these medium-sized enterprises, they can bring attention to the government. And like, again, like this is why I was, I was giving an example of, of E in Nigeria, um, um, Ian Aboyeji, who is like our example of like a multiple multiple round uh unicorn founder because it, i mean you were you were speaking about nigeria and twitter earlier and saying that it's the most popping on the continent as a south african i have to say uh the nigerians do do very great things but uh you know, if you, if you want a serious business uh, conversations, yes, absolutely. Deep political discourse. Oh, no. they're on par. But uh, I really don't think that anybody can compete with the South Africans on the memes. So I just needed to put that out there. But if you, if you follow him on Twitter, you'll see very recently, uh, I mean, he's, he's been doing it, but like he, he is continually commenting on and giving really high quality analysis of, uh, you know, what could enable uh, more entrepreneurship in a Nigerian context, in terms of regulation, in terms of the government, and I'm sure he's being consulted, right? And but but it requires you to grow to a certain stature for the government to even consider your opinion. Mm-hmm. And so again, it's this it's this matter, and and he's got some incredible opinions. But again, we need more. We need ten more. We need a hundred more people with their own unique perspectives to come in and weigh in on these questions of how governments can regulate and create prosperity but not just on paper, like in practice, like how do we stop working around the government regulation and against government regulation? How do we start working with it and having it enable us on a really practical level? So that when the guy at the port says, hey, I don't care what the government paper says, I only care about what my pocket says, that there's some solution in place. There's some recourse for me to have um, where I'm not... Continually victimized and and you know, found with barriers in every direction that I turn. Very interesting. Um,
0: on on the topic of regulatory structures that either inhibit or enable and accelerate uh, commercial ventures, what are the types of regulatory regimes, um, banking systems, and bureaucracies that you've had to deal with? as you've been building Vula so far? And can you share uh, any kind of earned insights that you think you could, you could uniquely kind of come across as a function of that journey? Um, I know you're focused on three particular kind of regions within Africa, uh, Kenya, Nigeria, and South Africa. Uh, so I'm very curious about how those, those systems that you as a FinTech oriented company may have to interact with and how they differ and what kind of lessons can be learned from that?
1: Okay, cool. Um, I'm gonna speak about, I think there are like three that may be, like there's loads that are interesting, but I'll talk about three right off the bat. One has to do with kind of data and handling data because we're handling lots of sensitive data. Um, One has to do with international development agencies and some of the bureaucracy there and the challenges that they face. And the other one is kind of large commercial banks that are based on the continent. That's of the challenges that they face. And the bureaucracies that, that work there. So uh, first of all, when it comes to like data handling, because you were just saying like what a, this is, we were just working on this now, so it's it's fresh in my mind. But basically, I mean, Vula is, is asking for a lot of trust as well from founders uh, because we're saying, you know, give us all of your data, business info, um, you know, your registration docs, your latest bank statements, whatever it is, because we have this amazing. AI that we're going to train to basically be a virtual CEO and answer all of the questions that a curious investor would require. Um, And only those investors that you give, you know, access to that data will we, will we be enabled to do. And I think like, you know, we have, we have, especially in Nigeria and South Africa, we have some pretty good frameworks for data protection and um, you know, the way that you treat personal and business data but i also think like if you're uh if you're a a company never mind a startup if you're a company who's operating in a geography and working on something like digital data you just have to decide to implement the highest standards from the start uh, and not like be like Mm geospecific and like pick the easiest one and say okay well you know in, in nigeria we don't have to for x y and z protections it just it it doesn't work like that like just identify the top data handling uh, policy in the world which i guess for us is like gdpr um, because the eu uh, really goes deep into it and just assume that that's your standard and hold to that standard and it's really good for two reasons one it reassures all of our partners because you know they don't have to worry about like oh is this like some fly-by-night data handling situation but also we're just not worried about changes in policies um, as more and more countries in Africa start to kind of develop their own data protection policies because we're just like whatever it is we know that we're at the standard already so there isn't going to have to be some deep changes to the way that Vula handles the data because we just make sure that we're handling it all to the the kind of top policy that exists in the world. And I think if you're trying to do that with anything, um, it's better to just always aspire to uphold that highest standard, even if it seems impractical at the start. And like Elon Musk does this a lot with his companies where, I think it was like when, when they were preparing for the um, the Tesla IPO. And um, he was just like, look, I'm running all of my private companies with the paperwork, like they're already public. So that the moment I need to flip the switch, I make sure that the books are all clean. I make sure that everything is is accounted for. I make sure that the standards that we're upholding already are in place so that I don't have any problems with the SEC. And it's like, try to do the same thing in my mind. Just operate at top from the beginning with the really sensitive things so that you don't run into challenges uh, going forward. Um, let's talk about development financiers. The development financing world is a large and complicated one and there's loads of bureaucracy and the reason there's loads of bureaucracy is because in order to even get the mandate to help with the development of countries you have to be an organization at a certain scale you have to earn the trust of sovereign governments Uh, you have to have a certain set of pools of talent and experience within your ranks and all of that also lends itself amazingly to bureaucracy. And what that means is that there's always going to be a challenge to move fast and move flexibly, um, and to take advantage of the latest uh, technological, um, you know, the, the latest hype cycle on whatever the tech is. But also, like literally, like use the latest tech to make your life easier. Um, you know, one of our really big clients uh, mentioned that they they basically have like a four month request cycle uh for their it department which means like they have to like write a whole report as to why they need the thing and then they can like get a bluetooth speaker or whatever they need for a particular project but like also if they want a new it system if they see that OpenAI has just come out with gpt4 and they're wondering how they can use that in their daily work it's like you're waiting like a year for that and so this is also where i think the the like the benefit of of the startup world and the startup approach comes in, because you can be mad flexible and you can create a really workable solution and productize it and say, here it is, here's the product, here's what you need and and kind of bypass a lot of those internal bureaucracies that uh, a lot of these um, very large organizations face every day. Um, And again, like when it comes to bureaucracy, especially for development and impact organizations, it's this question of like, how do we, like how do we monitor impact and, and how do we measure it and how do we know if a program has worked or not um, and who are we getting our funding from and are they actually happy with the outcomes of a particular program? And so, so much time and effort goes into reporting. Reporting what's going on, reporting on the reporting, figuring out if the framework that we have for reporting is actually effective or not. Do we have enough data to even know if the program that we ran over the past five years is actually helping the entire economy of Mali. No, we don't, we never really do. And so it's, it's really tough when there's this much pressure on you to have all of the answers as one of these large organizations that's spending tens or hundreds of millions of dollars. Um, and everybody's just expecting you to have an answer when, when like the reality is like, there is no, there is no answer. It's not, it's not easy to know if you've just immediately had a positive impact over the next 50 years on an economy, but by forcing, um, by forcing these answers, we also force some of these organizations to just sort of say things like just reach for, reach for a positive outcome and say, oh, look, these are the SDGs that we're obviously enabling. Here's our annual report. But when you talk to people on the ground, it's like, no, it's not that simple, uh, we're not having such a good time. It's not that easy. Um, and and yeah, I I think, you know, I don't I don't honestly, to be honest with you, I don't know how specific I can go into some of these challenges with, because these are some of the really sensitive, some of the really sensitive challenges that our our clients are sharing with us and that we're trying to work through them with. Um, but what I can say that happens so much of the time is that the people who are holding the purse strings do not have the perspective that is needed to know what's going on on the ground. And that's almost by definition, because to be able to build, to, 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 gain the trust of an ecosystem to make decisions over hundreds of millions of dollars, of dollars, you kind of have to be far from the ground. And so there are just uncreative ways that money is being spent right now. And again, I'm a deep believer that technological approaches combined with, changes in the ways that we build our communities and communicate with each other within these business ecosystems can enable the people with their hands on the purse strings to kind of to, to release them from the bondage of bureaucracy and enable them to actually take the creative decisions that they personally know would be more effective, but they just can't justify it to the board because you can't write it up in a 50 page document because you don't have the data yet. Yeah. Thanks. Uh, and you can cut any of this out I don't know if it's boring for you or not. no this is incredible Nick please continue Nick from food so, I, like I, I think what's crazy about the situation of most commercial banks on the continent is that they were set up to enable large corporates uh, large industrials, oil and gas extractives bit telecoms like that's what we do commercial banking in in, in Africa. We make a lot of money off of transactions. We make a lot of money maybe off of like corporate investment. Historically, commercial banks in Africa do not mess with SMEs. Like you already know this. Everybody knows this. I don't know if everybody knows this, but they don't. And they don't because we don't, like like we spoke about before, we don't have a standard for risk. We don't have a standard for why it's worth taking that risk. And if you can make your like 12% per year, Just like financing another mining project from anglo why would you bother with an sme like really why would you bother and that's basically that's like the basic story so we have a history of banking institutions not being set up number one to gauge sme risk to enable smes but at the same time they have this they have an unmatched distribution network for financial products and services because they're banks in the end. Individuals are there. They're reporting that they have a business. Uh, you know, Business accounts are still held with them. But when the time comes to actually get like an SME loan, like you, you have to give me five years of your historical financial statements and they all better be positive. And I'm like, look, man, I've got like two years of financial statements. And it's only last year that I started making a profit. But I've got this huge deal, right? And you're like, please. <laughs> and they're like, no, we can't. I'm sorry. I'm not even, you know, like the guy who's actually checking out the SME loans, like is just not even in the position to care about your business right now because he doesn't know your vertical and he's not specialized in it. And he's kind of doing a favor anyways, because his interest is is in a whole different geography or a whole different, um, you know, uh, uh, vertical. And so like what ends up happening is businesses just don't don't get financing or they get wildly prohibitive APRs on their loans. Um, and they still make it work somehow, or many of them don't make it work, I guess, because we don't have a middle market.
0: Here's here's a question I have for you. Um, If you were to pick one entity in, we're just going to focus on Nigeria here. In Nigeria, Nigeria, they can either be lending right now or they may not be lending right now, which is the number one entity when it comes to having data in particular, something that can act as credit input data for SMEs in Nigeria? It could be a SaaS company that's well-distributed and kind of interact to a company's balance sheet. Um, it can be telecoms, or it can be just a, a bank in general. But what's the most widely distributed, commercially penetrated kind of entity out there right now that um, has that data? Hopefully it's fuller in the future.
1: <laughs> you know, like it's... Man, what it is a really interesting question, like picking a single entity. Um, widest
0: distribution, um, depth of data can come second, but I'm curious mostly about widest distribution, uh, there's like about 200 million people in Nigeria, you know? Um, yeah, but
1: okay, let's do, we quickly need to talk about 200 million people in Nigeria. Okay, uh, there are 200 million human beings in Nigeria, and it is growing very fast. But uh, like how many of them are, you know, how many of them are are really the consumer that you're thinking about when you speak about 200 million people. Right. There's, there's about, I'd say there's about like one to 2 million. Yeah. Right. Like we have, we're like, we have disposable income. I think it's something like there's 1 million or one and a half million Nigerians with more than $600 a month of disposable income. Right. So I get that Nigeria is super populous, but like, unless your solution is targeting the base of the pyramid of those people who are seeking to really empower themselves from the ground up. I'm speaking farmers. I'm speaking basic education and access to education. I'm speaking basic access to, uh, food, water, energy. Um, you, that's not your customer base and that's not Nigeria. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, like in, in there's there's two there's two answers that I would give. Basically, one would be like Access Bank, right? Um, just a pure play, classic commercial bank, powerhouse of Nigerian financing. Um, why? Because they've got branches all over the place. And branches are important. Brick and mortar presence is important. As much as we want to talk about the digitization of the continent and it's happening, it's like Give me the brick and mortar because the brick and mortar is where people fill in forms, is where people provide their, you know, <laughs> their, their their business registration data is where they provide the information about the actual incomings and outgoings. And like, you know, the reason why I would pick Access Bank is because they also, uh, you know, they have access to everybody's account data. We're based in the UK right now where open banking has revolutionized what it means to monitor businesses, to have an open startup, uh, to enable Uh, services to kind of tack on to your, you know, to your your business accounts. Um, And the reason why I would go with a bank, uh, other than just having the data on the businesses and their, and their kind of daily, uh, their daily incomings and outgoings, is also because in the end, if you just look at a bank account, um, there are, there's loads of data that you can use to ensure that you've got like a trusted entity on your hands that you're not being like defrauded. Like it's not made up because in the end you can't fake money. Like you can put money in and out of something, you know, out of different, different entities. But if you have like as powerful of a system as we have for monitoring multiple moving parts, uh, it's much harder to defraud if you have full transparency. The other one is, you know, telecoms provider. Why telecoms providers? I have loads of friends. I have a good friend. Her name is uh, Pelonomi Moila. She, uh, she's running a South African AI company called Lilapa AI. And their, their kind of one-liner is African solutions for African problems. And one of the things that I know she she's going to be doing is, is really this idea of using telecoms data to create, like, an alternative credit scoring system for consumers. And, like, I'm always interested in this question of, like, where do we find correlations? in behaviors for paybacks and not like, actually, this is a huge, this is a huge point that I'm about to make here, Chris, you can cut everything else out. Basically, I think the difference is in working in EM in working in emerging markets and not is the question of whether companies and and ecosystem enablers are observers and quantifiers or whether they're going to do that and also roll up their sleeves and get their hands dirty. And everyone who's successful in Africa is not afraid to roll up their sleeves and get their hands dirty. Whether you're a VC or a loan provider or a company that's trying to enable a particular ecosystem, you can sit back and try to quantify the risk and try to come up with clever ways to observe the market. But if you forget the fact that you have hands and those hands can also go and play a, an important role in an ecosystem, you will lose out. And like a really clear example is is um, basically – like uh, non-banking financial institutions that are doing loans, many of them are finding out that if you take those unclaimed loans, like the non-performing loans, and you, instead of just like waiting on them or giving them to some like third-party Chinese debt collector to do God knows what with, you just give really friendly SMS reminders and tips on how you can go about paying back a loan. Like the, the, the performance... Skyrockets more than thirty five percent, and it's like, how do you how do you change your 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 mentality from simply being an observer and quantifier of risk, looking at data and saying what can we say about this, and instead look at the data and say what can we do about it?
0: Mm. That's actually incredibly interesting. I think um, the model that comes to mind here is something I mentioned in a conversation previously in an episode of this fellow called Elliot Pence, um, also from South Africa, who uh, runs a fund called Tofino Capital. Tofino is a micro venture firm that invests in uh, startups across Africa, mostly tech companies. Um, We were talking about the different models for a venture firm globally, San Francisco, New York, etc. And really, this two categories of venture firms. One is you're either a great picker, you're trying to pick great companies and back them in the same way that when you run a portfolio that's long short for a hedge fund, you're trying to build a portfolio of great companies. And then there's another genre of company, which only really became a thing in the last decade, which is we will help you build your company. right? And that's the A16s 16 of the world and the YCs of the world. And uh, in emerging markets, that's perhaps the seed stars, the founders' factories, um, et cetera. And so I think uh, in a context where, as you mentioned, there's going to be a lack of infrastructure. There's the need for kind of stronger institutional networks to fill certain gaps, if that makes sense. Um, it's quite clear that uh, having an operational presence, getting one's hands dirty, um, is crucial and also it's hard to compete with. So if anyone else is interested in building their own you know, presence in that way, I highly
1: recommend it. Yeah, it's, it's also like, it's also the idea that I think in, in an African context, it's completely necessary to do both. You can't, you can't actually do one without the other. Um, hmm. And like you gave, you gave like, you know, uh, Founders Factory as an example. They're a great example on the equity side, but there are loads of really interesting examples on the debt side as well. One of the unique, I mean, we've got a really unique reality in Africa, which is like our debt funds outperform our equity funds. Like that's unique, bro. Like we need to, we need to be observing that, and that's that that comes from, as I said, like a history of commercial banks not being able to, you know, provide immediate debt and and uh, like you know even financial support, and and our equity markets really only maturing over the past decade or so. So what does it mean? It means if I have to have a business, I need to be cash flow positive from the start, right? Like I, that's what it means. I'm not I'm not starting with this model of I'm gonna like get equity and then I'm gonna like raise the thing and then build the product and then do the MVP. It's like, no, I start with business. So like we've got, um, TrendX might be really interesting for you. TrendX is another partner that we're working with. They are web three. Shout out web three. This is Chris's podcast. Is
0: is this not a chicken chain product?
1: No, not a chicken chain product. I told you that we like web three. No, I like, like, I like web three as well. I put my, I put my money where my mouth is now. Um, Trendex what they do is that they help Nigerian companies to um, to basically tokenize their real world assets so they do like asset based financing mm-hmm. they tokenize the asset and collateralize it because in Nigeria collateralization is a lengthy uh, bureaucratic process and and then they put that up on their own market and also help to fund it so it's like here's like they could have just picked one wedge in this value chain that we've just mentioned but they've they're actually just rolling their cities up and they're saying look we're going to help you actually quantify the value of the asset we're going to help you go through the process of the paperwork to actually collateralize it officially and then we're going to tokenize it for you so that it's on a liquid market digitized so that anyone can invest and it's like it takes that entire, you know, the entire offering to enable some of these companies to do it. What's dope about TrendX is that they started with the obvious ones like mines and people with heavy machinery and whatever. But now they realize, actually, we can do the same thing for IP. So they're starting to support some uh, Nollywood uh, production studios in collateralizing their IP, which means that if you love Nollywood, you can go onto TrendX right now and finance the next Nollywood banger yourself and own a piece of the ip that comes out of that movie shout out trendex okay (laughs) but these are the these are the types of innovations and like getting your hands dirty that i'm talking about another one is like a much smaller company uh called avovision they're also super cool man like these guys are based in south africa they are impact financiers slash um kind of an accelerator incubator enabler and what are they enabling? Well, one of the one of the types of companies that they're enabling are alien invader clearing companies. So in South Africa you have a lot of alien invasive plants. Sorry, you you're you thought it was gonna get controversial there. I was alien invasive to be, plants, alien, yeah. Yeah. Alien invasive plants are a huge problem in a lot of on a lot of the continent because they came from, you know, Australia or South America and they take a lot of water and they, they overgrow. And so if you're a government department and you have government buildings, these alien invasive plants grow all over dams and important infrastructure. So you put out a, a a tender and you say, can somebody please come and clear these? And because it's a, you know, you don't need a huge amount of tertiary education. It opens up the market to who can actually offer their clearing services. And so a lot of people who, Can just you know have grown up clearing these things who just need to buy you know 10 uh, chainsaws and have a pickup truck can start to offer their services to to a government and if you can offer your services to a government then your counterparty risk is actually pretty good right you can finance your operation based on counterparty risk because the government usually is good for it or more good for it than anyone else in your market that's it that's a really interesting piece of alpha So if instead of just letting these guys wait for, uh, you know, the annual clearing tender to come up, you start to encourage them to see themselves as a company and to go out and find more customers like, you know, mines who also need these alien invasive plants cleared or golf courses or whatever, uh, you you can really have a business that is very wide ranging and 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 can enable a bunch of people who are at the bottom of the pyramid to start to build up their own income to build up their own prosperity. Uh, and so Avovision kind of starts with this. They start by helping these guys number one register a business, kind of get it together, then build it up so that they go out and start to promote themselves to the private market. And and by doing this, they become experts in what a good alien invasive clearing company in South Africa looks like, but like deep experts. And over a two year period, they prove their expertise by getting very um, superior returns. Uh, So that instead of them being funded, their loan book being funded by kind of the the public uh, purse and like public grants, they start to be have a loan book that's backed by commercial banks. Very interesting. Very interesting. These, these these are some,
0: Uh, it can be notable companies that you've shared Um, ones of unique models that are kind of tackling problems uh, specific to their geography Um, I'm wondering final question for you is more kind of aspirational more on the kind of like potential side of things Um, if you were to have a request for startups you you have a young um, uh, Nick Minion who's listening to the podcast right now um so nick minion not from vula um and he's he's got the same hunger and kind of you know talent as you right and um he's like huh what startup is there for me to build um tackling problems well you know fantastic that he's listening to this because nick's spent a lot of time speaking to people you know working on fundamental business problems and who have fundamental you know business and ecosystem problems so what are some Uh, ideas or problems out there that you think others should be kind of spending their time looking at, and you think will be kind of both impactful and lucrative for prospective founders. Mm.
1: So, so what I will say is we look at, we look at demographics of Africa and we see median age is 19 and the age of our leaders is 63 median age. Um, We, we look at our continent and we see that the broad base of people are still living, just hovering at the poverty line and don't have disposable yeah. income and are trying to access these basic, basic services. Like for me, the first answer is don't underestimate the problems that you young, beautiful person are facing in your daily life every day. Don't underestimate your need, your desire to get your hands on a phone or a laptop because you want to educate yourself and push yourself further. Don't underestimate your need to, you know, get access to a light uh, in your home because you're sick of the paraffin fumes. Don't underestimate the opportunity that exists when you help your parents on their smallholder plot to grow fonio or grow potatoes or grow cabbage, and the opportunities there are to innovate there. Uh, I'm speaking to a particular subset of a young Nick here. I think that there is such a huge number of people on the continent who are seeking very simple and robust solutions to very simple, what look like very simple problems. Um, We need to get people more access to education. Uh, And education doesn't just mean schooling. Education means the ability to investigate reality to test your model of reality and to create solutions for that and reflect on the solutions that you're creating. And so access to technology, um, access to the things that that keep you alive, like light and and energy and food. Uh, These are all the basics and it sounds kind of boring, but it's like farming and energy and education and basic technology. And there are five thousand ways that you can go about enabling that. There are so many parts of that ecosystem. Whether you're building, a, you know, a new, you know, a new, a new laptop for students on the continent to access. Father. Forgive me, Heavenly Father. <laughs> Beautiful. Welcome to East London, everyone.
0: Yeah, this is, this is um, East
1: London. This is not TIA. This is... Uh... <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Caribbean right there. Um, no, o- o- I guess all I'm trying to say is like, you know, I, I know a guy who, um, he uh, grew up in a village. His mom spent a bunch of time saving so that he could get a laptop because she knew that if he could get a laptop, he could teach himself how to code and he could become everything that he needed to become. And, like, she saved, bro. Like, she spent a lot of time saving. She spent three years saving up so that he could get access to that thing. Incredible. He got it. And what did he do? He's created a way for parents like his mom to finance that purchase to create a network of trust, of people who are building trust, building their own um, road... um, their own track record of trust, uh, but their parents of kids who who want to see their child succeed beyond just like basic schooling, um, and so he's he's figuring out new forms of financing that can enable that. Um, I have a friend in Kenya. She, you know, her parents were selling vegetables, mom and pop store type situation. They needed financing to enable them to get access to like you know the next level of farming implements to to increase their output. And so she's she's just created a green financing bank to, to enable people like her parents. Like the, the problems are not far from you, is what I will say after a very long way of getting here. But the problems are not far from you. Just like look at the problems that are in your life. And if you feel like you're unique in one particular dimension, but that you and your friends and your community are facing, These similar types of problems, and you've got a market. Um, Just trust yourself, basically, and then try and solve it. Okay, useless, but also very true.
0: (laughs) I appreciate that sober analysis there. I um, uh, am—I'm somewhat far from these markets, and so I feel like my problems might be slightly different to um, uh, maybe the markets I find more interesting. With that being said, um, I think one way in which, hopefully, I'm channeling, channeling. next advice and energy here is this podcast solves part of the problem which is trying to get visibility into these markets that i've not spent much time on and, and, and
1: you know and if you want to go and live it you know what i mean like go and live it it's going to be very yeah. hard for you to solve a problem if you haven't lived it totally. i don't think you know i i after my undergrad i went and lived in the rural eastern cape of south africa for about a year and a half, working with young people coming straight out of high school, uh, you know, running youth empowerment programs. Like, I don't think without some of those perspectives on what it really looks like to live in a place with a prosperity vacuum, that I would have some of the perspectives that I've needed to start Vula. Like go and live it, you've got loads of time, like spend your time wisely, but don't think that you can solve the problem from far away, I think. I agree with
0: um, And and I like the term prosperity vacuum. Um, that's a, that's a great one right there. Um, in any case, we're going to wrap this up. Um, Nick, do you have any final comments, questions, suggestions for listeners before we end this, you know, wonderful conversation? Thank you so much. But yeah,
1: any, any yeah, final it's, 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 First of all, it's a very exciting time to be alive. The world is going through loads of changes. Old ways of doing things are breaking down by the second. And the world is in desperate need of people who are positive, who are optimistic, who have a story about how we can take the next steps together. And it's a story of unity, it's a story of diversity, but it's also a story of power, uh, of, of the amazing power that human beings have. And like all of us get to participate in creating this story. And Vula is, is, is you know, our, our, our contribution to that. But we know that there is so much more that needs to be done and that will be done. And it's a wonderful time to be alive. So like, you know, jump in. Don't doubt yourself. Make it happen. Uh, Get in touch with me. I'm always open. If there's anything that's interesting that you'd like to talk about, uh, hit me up. Uh, Krish will put my details on the podcast. (laughs) I will indeed.
0: Thank you so much, man. It's been wonderful and uh, all the best.
1: Thanks, bro. You too. Thanks for running this dope podcast. You're a boss.